Thank you for tuning in to this very special episode of Radio Never Apart. We at Never Apart are extremely honored to share a monumental interview between two fashion icons, Tracy Norman and Connie Fleming. Both are legendary in the modeling worlds for facing significant adversity as black trans women. Tracy in the 1970s and 1980s, Connie in the 1990s. In this interview, they speak very honestly about the challenges trans models faced in past decades, the current visibility and celebration of trans models, and their hopes for the future. Hello, hello, Tracy Africa. How are you today? I am great. How are you? I'm fine. Dealing with, um, you know, trying to get through this crazy time as um, best as possible. Where should we start? Wherever you want to. How how did you start in the fashion business? Um, Well, one day I was after I I graduated high school in 72, and so I started my transition then, and maybe about a year or so later um, is when I um, was downtown in my city here of Newark, and I was just doing some window shopping on my way to a specific store, and uh, some friends that I knew before my transition come running out the store, greeting me, um, shocked to see me. Uh (laughs) And uh, they thought that I was um, beautiful enough to be a model. So I was like, okay. And then uh, (laughs) they were already in the the, uh, fashion business. So one was a designer, the other one was a professional model already. And uh, the other, um, the other one was like uh, gifted with singing, dancing, acting, and doing a little modeling on the side. So uh, they started training me, um, and that's basically how I got started in my local town. And then I became, you know, a name in my town, doing local fashion shows. <laughs> As it <laughs> should be. Yes, but which was supposed to um, practice, that was practice, and and I was still learning how to present clothing, how to walk, how to turn, you know, so, um, yeah, so that's how it all started. After your beginnings, and you moved on, you moved on to coming into Manhattan, or did you get an agent, or how did you, how did you foray into the big leagues, so to speak? Well, I was in New York um, doing a little shopping around town and walking because it was a, you know, beautiful summer day. And I wound up in the Pierre Hotel. A friend of mine told me about the where the fashion shows because he had this connection where all the fashion shows were going to be. So he was sending me to all the fashion shows from the top designers so I could see how professional girls walk. And then I would come home and do the same thing in my mirror. And so he gave me the appointment to go to uh, the Pierre Hotel on uh, Fifth Avenue. And I saw these girls that I recognized from magazines and they were going into the hotel. And I followed them. Um, my brain was just on automatic for some reason that day. And so they all climbed into the elevator, which was a little confusing for me because the um, ballroom with the fashion show would be is on the mezzanine level. So uh-huh. I just moved on the elevator with them. I, I was the last one to crowd in. And uh, as we went, got off at the floor stopped and you know they were getting off and I went to the left and they turned to the right and so I just turned around still following the girls 
And uh, <laughs> I was the last one online, and there was a big giant suite at the end of um, this long hallway, and the girls were going in one at a time. And I, I'm standing there waiting for my turn. I said, what have I gotten myself into? But I couldn't leave for some reason. So it was my turn finally. I walk in, and I meet this um, the people that were in there at the time. I didn't know who these people were, but found out later that it was the famous photographer Irving Penn, the editor from Italian Vogue, the actual designer who was inspired from his African trip that he had did, um, I think the year before, to do this summer collection of um, African clothing. And they interviewed me, they asked me, did I have an agent? And I said, no, I, I, I didn't. I think that I'm in the wrong place. And they said, well, do you have a photo of yourself? And I just handed them a little slide that I had that was in my bag. He took that slide, took down my information. And two days later, he called me and told me that uh, I was hired to do a photo shoot for Italian Vogue. And it was for two days. And I would be getting $1,500 a day. You know, it was kismet and you followed your destiny. Yeah, I'm not even knowing <laughs> that. Yeah, no, no, not even knowing that that leap of faith. Yes. Like I said, you know, I don't know why my legs wouldn't get off that move and get off that line, but um, I just followed through and and. Then um, and on the second day, Mr. Penn himself um, was standing at his desk, called me over and told me that um, he was going to be sending me to an agent. And I was like, okay. So um, he said, let me call to let them know that you're coming. So he made the phone call in front of me and the agency was Zoli Management and I had an appointment to go and see them the following week. And when he was on the phone, he told them that he had a young Beverly Johnson standing in front of him and I'm sending her to you. But because that, that is, that is it. Because when I think of her, I think of you because the bone structure. Yeah. It's, you can't beat that with a stick. Yeah. Yeah, you people say them. Yeah, it's undeniable. Yeah, and when I got with the agency, they um, started um, campaigning me as the young Betsy Johnson, and that's how it all started for me. Oh my gosh, how wonderful and and so inspiring. Yeah. Um, so at this time, how are you dealing with? your trans them well um okay i don't want to upset anybody but i but the times back in the um 70s when it all started for me there uh -huh. was no, no terminology for yes. um for uh, uh, women like me so mm -hmm. i never identified as transgender i've identified as female and that's how i yes. carried my, my uh walk through life and so um and because of that mental and physical thing that i had going on um that's how i carried myself yes so it was a non-factor right yes. i didn't feel, i didn't feel any pressure um up until like my career started moving quickly yes. there was no time to breathe and so I was getting worried because um, I got worried the first day that I came into the office and I had did a few high-end catalogs and, um, you know, doing some light traveling. So uh, my agent told me that uh, they had a request from a magazine and the magazine was Essence. And this was the first time that I worked for Essence magazine. And mm -hmm. I tried to talk my my agent out of letting me go to Essence Magazine. And my excuse was that I said, well, I would like to get more tear sheets and, and, and get more and more 
familiar with being in front of the camera and maybe they might offer me a, a cover. Yeah. And so they said, no, we can't do that because it was Susan Taylor, who was the editor at that time, uh, specifically asked for me. So they couldn't not send me. Yeah. I went for the first meeting. She, you know, was like, oh, my God, you do look like a young Beverly Johnson. I was this. I was beautiful. I was, you know, she was praising me. The and truth. <laughs> she spoke the truth. So um, she was uh, telling me that uh, she there was a photo shoot the following week. We would love for you to be, you know, to be there. Uh, we're going to call the agency to see if that you're available. So we're going to book you. And then the following week came. I went to the photo shoot and it was packed with all of these um, um, black models. And they were coming uh -huh. in through the door um, getting hair done and getting um, makeup done and and they were just yelling next to sit in front of the camera and so um, as I was getting my hair done and my makeup done and they put this big brass um, um, metal um, choker around my neck and um, put me in front of the camera I took a few shots and that was that and they put that was in their their next issue that um, that specific photo, and maybe about um, I would say three weeks, three to four weeks later, um, the same thing happened. She called me up to the office to come and uh, have a meeting, and they were doing the holiday cover for the December issue back in I think this was like 74 I think yeah I think this was 73 or 74 and this was um around the same time that I got the Clairol issue after the meeting went home she sent this woman over to uh braid my box braid my hair then she beaded the whole head in these gold beads and I showed up for work the next day and it was me the photographer the makeup artist there wasn't a hairdresser because they didn't need a hairdresser. There wasn't a stylist because um, uh, Susan was walking around. She had this uh, beautiful, she told me that it was an Egyptian shawl when she went to Egypt. And so she took that off of her and wrapped it around my breast. They sat me in front of the um, camera and told me to pretend that I was Cleopatra sailing down the Nile. So in beauty shots, I listened to the client and I tried mm -hmm. to project that. And when I project it and I'm, I'm in that character, I get tunnel vision. And so when I got into the tunnel vision, that's when the photographer and Susan and the makeup artist and, and he had two assistants with him, the, the photographer, and they were going like, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. Be still. Stay there. Stay there. And he was just click, 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 clicking away. And then I, you know, just moved my face, just gave them different angles. And um, so that went on. And the next thing I know, somebody is coming in the door on the left side of the room and my tunnel vision broke on the left side. And so I just felt something evil once that Coming. person came into the yeah. door. The whole, that atmosphere was just so negative. And so he called Susan over to him. They had a conversation. The photographer saw, he was still clicking, but the photographer saw that I'd lost my focus. He told me to relax. So I relaxed, and when I did that, I just glanced over, recognized the hairdresser that was at the first photo shoot. He was assistant to the main hairdresser, uh -huh. and he was the one that was talking to Susan. And when he left, Susan came back over. She looked at me, then she looked into the photo box where the pictures were, and she told the photographer, she said something to the photographer, and then she said that, um, I think we have it all. And um, 
these are these are very beautiful. It's possible that we might be using one of these shots for the December cover. Mm-hmm. So basically, after that conversation, she shut the set down. And then I went into the to the dressing area, and then she came in behind me. She um, before she started on fastening the uh, shawl that she had knotted in back of me. She uh-huh. lifted her hands on my shoulder. She said, oh, you have such beautiful soft skin. And I looked in the mirror as she was looking at me and I wanted to say, uh, duh, I'm a woman. I'm supposed yeah. to have soft skin. But I saw that the way she looked at me through the mirror, it was different than when I had those meetings with her in the office. Questioning, she, questioning she, who yeah, you were, she, questioning, yes. like, like, like trying to find. Trying to find what was being said about me. And then yes. um, she unveiled, she untied the shawl. I got dressed. I had her sign the voucher because I'm supposed to turn that in after every photo shoot, but I turned it in yes. the next day. They told me that um, that I was good for the day. And I said, okay. I said, I, n- not even a, a, a testing with photographer. They told me no. And so for the next week and a half, I would call every single day to write down my ghosties, where I was uh-huh. going, the job I had, what photographers I was going to see and what clients I was going to see and nothing. So literally, I was blessed with the opportunity to better my life. And that one incident canceled that. My career literally stopped overnight as far as New York was concerned. Um, When did you find out what happened and and that it was the hair hair assistant that you know basically outed you well after going i had before all of that before i found out anything uh, my last phone call to the office my booker told me that well Dolly wants to have a meeting with you can you come in and i said yes uh-huh. I'll be so i came in i showed up and we, it was a short meeting. He was saying that, well, we're, we're going to be dropping you, Tracy. And I was looking kind of puzzled. And so he took out a photo that I had shot in these leather pants. And he made the excuse that my hips were too big. I was the perfect model size in New York in the 70s at that time, which was a size yeah. six. I had to be able to fit samples, and samples at that time was a size six, not a two or a zero, which as which they are now, as they are today. Size six was the sample size, and I fitted size six perfectly. So I kind of got it then, and there was nothing that I could do but thank him for the opportunity, and I left. A month or so later. I had uh, ran into um, a, a friend that knew me, you know, from New Jersey, one of the um, people that I hung out with before my transition. And he heard that the assistant lived in East Orange, New Jersey. And he was questioning people if they knew me. And somebody obviously told him that they did and then told them the story of me. And that's how I found out that it was um, it was not only the black community, but it was the gay community. And you need to understand back then in the 70s, black gay men did not appreciate nor like nor respected the beauty and talent that women like us possess. Yes, because it, it, it's it's threatening and it's something that it, it, it's rooted in misogyny. Yes. And yes. it's rooted in slavery. It's rooted in like 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 you know all the all the tropes mm-hmm. of a racist society and uh 
racist society that is based in that kind of misogyny. Yeah. And that you are somehow fooling someone or, or, or the world and that you have to be stopped. And yeah. that, I, I, I don't know, I don't understand, um, is there a sort of satisfaction that comes with it? And that you will sort of gain from it. It's it's very counterproductive and evil, as you said. It's evil thing of where you feel that you have to tear someone down. That's that's it. That's the bottom line. That's my answer. That it was just pure evil that um, someone would do that to another person, especially someone who is gay. They're gay, I'm gay, you know, and they don't want to see me achieve. Someone in your community that knows your struggle, that Mm -hmm. knows that one, it's hard enough in in the world as it is, being Black Mm -hmm. and being part of the LGBT community, and then even after that, being trans. Yeah. which is part of the which is part of the LGBT community but especially back then there was this kind of need for 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 a way to look down upon and a way to sort of prop yourself up on the backs of others but you know i we we see it now the 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 way America is set up that mm-hmm. way, yeah. You know, if if you're at the bottom, there has to be somebody below you to step on, or else you, know, you cannot exist. You cannot live. You cannot breathe. When it should be that, you know, whoever is at the bottom should be the ones who are who are the most compassionate. Well, that's where they tried to keep a girl like me on the bottom. It's, it's, um, I always just had the feeling that they put the girls in one specific category and that's prostitution and drugs yes. and all the negativity that come with no life. And, um, but what they don't realize is that, you know, sometimes that, you know, in order to survive, a girl has to do sexual survival work. Yes, yes. Sex work is, is one. I mean, you could be on a stage, as in, as in my case and in my story, you either, when I, when I, started to transition and come out and everything like that I started as a drag performer mm-hmm. and you know if if I didn't have that I only had one more option in the society and that was sex work right right and there was this thing that they were both looked down upon so you know you're damned if you do and you're damned if you're if, if you don't, but it was still kind of uh, a stick to hold in front of you and, you know, keep you down. Yeah, definitely, definitely try to keep you down. And uh, and then here I come trying to um, make something of my life and they would not allow that for me to happen. Being the personification of Nefertiti, threatened them it threatened their you know the 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 way they go about in life being evil here is you know the ancestors speaking through you of your regalness and your beauty and they could not handle it did the clairol box come out after this and then they took it off the shelves or no they um that the clairol box came before the second floor. Yes. And um, that's how I was able to get my very first apartment on 70th and West End Avenue. Okay. From the monies from Clarol. <clears throat> and in my 
young brain at the time and working as a professional model, the only thing that was on my mind is to, I had a rent to pay and a dog to feed. <laughs> that was my mentality. And uh, yeah, so that's how I conducted myself. That's how I um, went through New York life. I was on top of the world at one point, you know, at, in my head, you know, I was like, oh my God, I have this career and it's exciting, it's nerve wracking, it's adrenaline rushing. And so, um, yeah, I was just uh, enjoying life. As, as it should be, as, as the world should have, you know, you and your talent and your sense of style and the way you carried yourself propelled you into this field. Mm-hmm. So then why shouldn't you feel pride and feel a sense of going someplace and building something? That, that, that's normalcy. A- after this event, what were sort of the avenues that you sought to get you through this period? Well, after um, all of that went down and I didn't have any work, I did have savings. So I was trying to hold on to um, my apartment. So that lasted for maybe about uh, six months. And Uh I was running out of money and I, you know, I had to move back home to mothers. And, you know, that was always an open door for me. And so um, that's what I did. I packed up uh, my clothing. I left my furniture. I packed up my dog and took the train back to Jersey. And um, yeah, and so a year after me being home, I ran into um, a girlfriend of mine by the name of, um, well, her name is Sherry, a beautiful, exotic woman. She was black, of course. And so we started modeling together in Newark because we were born and raised in Newark. And when I ran into her, she said that she was um, going to to Paris. Did I want to come? And I said, yes. So I had to hustle, you know, like really quickly because she was going in like um, to a two-week period. So what I had to do was buy my plane ticket first, uh-huh. ask my mother for my sister's birth certificate, because I certainly couldn't use mine for a passport. Yes. And so yes, the, I, the, the papers, it's like going through, um, it's like, show me your papers, and you're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Oh God, that, that, that rigmarole is so So I went into the I went into New York uh, with birth certificate and my plane ticket. We had a standby plane ticket. We went out to Kennedy Airport one evening, got a standby ticket on TWA. And the next day I went into New York to um, the passport place. And because I had my ticket already, all I had to do was wait for an hour, take the photo and for them to process me a, a passport that quickly. Uh, Sherry and I went back and forth every evening around midnight um, for about four nights to before we can get on a flight because you know you have to go and see if somebody had canceled. Yeah, and for seven. Finally, yeah, yeah. Finally, that um, fourth night, uh, people had canceled, and we got on that plane. And between the both of us, we might have had two hundred dollars in our uh-huh. pockets on our way to Paris, not knowing where I was going, but she had been there um, a year late, a year before me. So we found a hotel, checked in the hotel. We called um, a friend of mine and that's the, um, by the name of Tommy. And he was the one that thought that I was beautiful enough to become a model. And he was just staying in another hotel three doors away. We had a suite. We didn't ask for a suite a two-bedroom um, <laughs> We didn't ask for that, but they gave us that. So um, in that evening, we called Tommy to let him know that we were in town. He asked where we were. That's when we realized that he was just a few blocks away. And Sherry said, well, we have two bedrooms here if you want to come. 
And so he came and it was all three of us uh, sharing this apart, sharing that apartment. And while we were there, uh, it never, it, it was just a weird situation. Either Sherry would get work and pay the bills and feed us. Mind you, we lived literally on what is called pond frit sandwiches. That's a 12 inch hero with stuffed with French fries and hot um, uh, Moroccan mustard inside of there. Yeah. And we yeah. had the, we had the man cut it in threes and we were able to get three Cokes and, um, and it only cost six francs and that yeah. went on for a while. So Sherry would get work, Tommy would get work, I would get work. And then it just went on, you know, like that until, uh, we, we, start, we didn't hang out with the models. We started going to jazz clubs because that's where, uh, the black Americans were hanging out and, you know, and so we were, you know, hanging out at jazz clubs and we met this, uh, um, black American female singer by the name of Lavelle. And uh, she was very popular and she had a deal with a record company in Paris. And so uh-huh. she, she um, was doing her album and she asked uh, if me and Tommy, if we knew how to sing. And so we said yes. And so she hired us to, uh, um, with a couple of other people that she knew, to do background vocals on her CD. After her CD came out, we, Tommy and I, did background vocals for her in a couple of clubs around town. And then I made money. Uh, we, uh, I made money. Uh, we got friends with uh, very friendly with the um, owner who owns the Palace Hotel, which was equivalent to Studio 54 in New York, where all the actors and models and all the bougie people would be. And uh, underneath the palace, there was this private club called The Privilege. And so we would always be down there because that's where the owner would always be. And about maybe six weeks or so, the manager of the privilege was doing this surprise birthday party for him and they wanted um, me and he said if I knew two other black girls maybe we can put on a show like a 60s um, a 60s show so we did um, rehearsed with a choreographer to do dance steps and Patrick Kelly did our gowns he was a uh, up-and-coming black uh, American art, uh, fashion designer. Yeah. And so he did our gowns and uh, we were practicing to doing the routines to stop in the name of love. So we pantomimed, stop in the name of love on stage. You know, um, it, was, it, was, it was like a dream because they gave us the full works. They did special lighting and the stage was filled with fog. And um, it was just a beautiful thing. And we did that for about um, a, a, about two months. That went on and we became very popular in Sunday afternoons in the tea, tea party. <laughs> uh-huh. It's very um, Grace Jones, Jerry Hall, and Antonio Lopez. Yes, all of those people were there. We partied with all of them. But I was never yeah. more struck. Because these were people like me who had special talents and gifts, and um, you know they were, we were all partying together with um, poor, rich, medium class. You know, we were all just partying yeah. in one big room. We were there for one purpose: to listen to good music and dance. So there was no pretense, which was fabulous. Um, yeah, and so we did that, and then maybe about. Um, after we say yeah, so that gave us money to save up, and Tommy and I got a, an apartment together. Sherry met uh, her future husband um, mm-hmm. in Paris, so she moved in with him, and Tommy and I got a flat, and then um, he um, started dating, and three was a crowd, so he knew this um, American dancer who was signed with a ballet company uh, in Paris. And 
his roommate left, which was a model. And so he was looking for a roommate. We ran into him one evening at the palace. And Tommy, you know, said, well, yeah, yeah Tracy can move in. <laughs> so he, he, was, he was pushing me out of the apartment because he was dating. And so it was, a, it was a very small apartment. So, you know, there was really no privacy. So anyway, um, I moved in with him. He was hardly ever there because he was touring a lot. And one day the phone rang and a woman on, on the other line was asking for the girl that used to live there and she was speaking French and I had to interrupt her. And I was like, excuse me, pardon, madame, uh, parlez-vous anglais? And so she said, yes, she spoke English. And I said, oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> French was a little iffy. Uh, you know, if you don't pronunciate, won't even try to help you and, you know, uh -uh. Um, you know correct you. So, um, yeah, so anyway, she, um, I told her, well, that, um, uh, she moved back to New York and, um, I knew she was a model. So I instantly said, um, are you looking for a model? And she said, yes. And at the time she didn't realize, I guess she was speaking to a black girl. So anyway, cause the model that left was white. And so, um, she said, can you come in? Um, on Thursday, and I lied to her and told her, uh, no, that I have a previous engagement and my contract would be up um, two weeks from now. Would that be okay? So she said, sure, when the contract is up, um, call this number. This is my name. So I wrote everything down and um, we hung up the phone. We had, you know, disagreement. We hung, I hung up the phone. What it was is that I had discovered real food when I had money and my hips, <laughs> and my hips started growing. So I ran downstairs to the local farmer, farmer's market and I got me some sandwich wrap and I lied to you, not my sister. I wrapped myself in this wax paper all the way from my kneecaps all the way up to my chest. And I walked the streets of, of Paris for two weeks to get exercise in and sweat that fat off of me. <laughs> and so finally, the two weeks was up. I was feeling a little more comfortable with my body. And I, um, so I went in and so two days later after the phone call, I went in for the interview. She met me in the, um, downstairs in the lobby and she kind of tilted her head when she saw me, <laughs> even though, you know, I was dressed in my black dress and, uh, high heels and, and a little short leather jacket that I had on and my hair pulled back and red lips and sunglasses. So uh, she, I went up to, um, we walked up this beautiful marble staircase and we went into the room and there was a rack of clothes and there was one outfit on a rack by itself and she asked me to put these things on and it was a beautiful pencil thin chocolate leather skirt and it was a satin blouse that had a puff sleeve that gathered at the at the wrist and then there had a extra long collar to it that you wrap around two times and tie into a bow and a tweed uh -huh. and a beautiful tweed fitted tweed coat. And so I came out of my dress, was taking the skirt off the rack and someone knocked on the door, one of her assistants I gathered and um, asked her something. She left the room, told me she would be back. And so I went to go step into the skirt. And when I got to my hip, it would not move. So since she was out of the room, I literally laid down on the floor and I wiggled my, my <laughs> into that skirt, grabbed the blouse. I was buttoning up the blouse and I was, um, you know, fidgeting with the collar and I hadn't zipped up the skirt yet and uh, was fidgeting with the collar. So the blouse was on the outside and she said, oh, no, 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 you have to tuck this shirt in. So I started tucking it in and then I asked her, I said, could you help me fasten and zipping it up for me? And so she said, sure. And when she came over, I 
sucked in that gut girl. <laughs> and the she closed it, but she closed it and snapped it and zipped it up. And so she and that, uh, she helped me into the jacket. We walked down this long hallway. And then I went into the room, met the designer. He asked me to walk. And so I walked for him and um, walked back to him. And then he said, can you walk and then show me how you take off the jacket? And I said, sure. And then I walked, stopped, turned in the middle before I got to him, turned around, started unbuttoning the jacket, shimmied out of the jacket, grabbed the jacket as it fell, held it in one hand and walked back to him. And he said, fine, you're perfect. And so they hired me and I became house model for Balenciaga. Thank you. Thank it, was you. Me, it was me and um, it was five of us. I was the only black girl. And we did two shows a day. And I will lie to you not, sister, those shoes were killing me. <laughs> Every day it was a torture, I swear to you, because French shoes are made so narrow. They are cut so narrow, it's ridiculous. And I had to shove my, these sausages up in that shoe and put a smile on my face like everything was, was grand. And you know, in Paris, it's a two hour lunch. So after the first show, we get to either go to lunch or, you know, do whatever we're going to do. And I always went home, went back to the flat. Ran some a tub of cold water, stuck my foot in it until it was time for me to go back to work. Yeah, every single no. day. No, because m models deserve like special foot, like <laughs> spe spe special feet, like attention. Because it's like if the shoe doesn't fit. Too damn bad. Exactly. In, emote, and do the job. I've always lived by the by the code: beauty and pain are twins, yes. and you can separate them. No, they. they it's it, it, it's not possible to to like do it and not be somewhere like you know in pain. Mm -hmm. If it isn't the shoe, it's it's the waist. If it isn't the waist, it's the neck. If it isn't one thing, it's the other. It's the other. There's like a hairpin in there just grinding at oh. the last nerve in your skull. Let's not talk about those French rolls, honey. That those French rolls that they put in the back of your head. Let's. I don't even want to discuss that with those pins. Oh, please. And <laughs> you flinch, and, and and they say, "Oh, saba." Yes, yes, yes. And then they pull it harder, and you're like, "But I, I, you know, I'm in pain." But you're yes. just pulling it harder. So your career did um, continue. Yes, it continued in you, Paris. Okay. Well, when my uh, contract with Balenciaga was up, um, Tommy suggested that I should try Italy. So yes. I booked a ticket on a train, an overnight, the overnight train. I got a private booth and a sleeping car, and I went into Italy. But the thing was it that the timing was off, girl. The timing was so off because it was the it was the middle of summer, and oh no, and everybody's yeah. gone. Everybody, all the Italians were gone, and it's nothing but Americans. Who, wherever else they come from, it was all tourists. And I've got an agent, but the agent said there's no work unless you wanted, unless you want to do. Um, uh, uh, there was no, there was, there was no um, housework or uh, magazine work because you know everybody was gone. Everybody's yeah. on vacation. Um, yeah, it's the same thing in, in France. Yeah. Every everybody is on vacation until September and then when they come back in September. Yeah. If they've had a really good time, they go on strike for a couple of weeks. Right. But she was kind. I stayed in the hotel 
And um, she said, well, just stay because there is a trunk show coming up um, the following week, and I can get you into that. And I said, okay, okay. fine. You know, so, um, do, you know, during the trunk show, it's like Jacob Javits, but um, what it is is that they have a group of models, and you're not walking around the thing. There's a, there, there is a runway, and you're wearing everybody's clothes. Yeah. So I, was, I did that for um, about four days. And then, you know, that was over with and there was no work and, you know, it was still summer. So I just booked the flight back to New York, which which I I regret doing that because I should have went back to Paris. And since I've already, you know, like established myself in Paris and um, MIT wasn't out in Paris. You know, so I kind of lucked up doing the showroom work because, you know, those, those girls from New York does, do come to um, Paris to do all the designer shows. And since I didn't have an agent, you know, God was on my side. He blessed me with working in a showroom where I didn't have to run into the girls and take jobs. Yeah. And then they recognized me because I was taking jobs from them when I was work, working in New York. And, you know, my name circulated with photographers. So I kind of caused a lot of confusion in New York, girl. <laughs> a lot of confusion. So I went and, back. and it was a way, but because, you know, modeling is the survival of the fittest, the weak and the slow get eaten. Yes, this is true. So, you know, if, if there's a way to chop, chop. <laughs> if it gets them that job, definitely. If they have some sort of dirt on you, though, she do she does drugs. You don't want her. Yeah. You know, anything, any little negativity, any little negative thing that they have on you, they they will definitely tell just to get the job because it's you know it's it, it it's hard business. But at it that is. particular time in the seventies, black girls couldn't get arrested in in Europe. They were doing shows left and right. The white girls wanted to protest. Yeah, no, but, but, but because it was, you know, the Battle of Versailles, and after the Battle of Versailles, all of the French designers do, and and, and with the um, help of Eunice Johnson and Ebony Fashion Fair, the mm-hmm. designers all realized, wait a minute. Yeah, these look how girls, girls move in their clothes. The first one to, to, to hire black girls was East Saint Laurent. Yeah. And so that just made all the doors open for everybody. Every season, for at least four seasons, the black girls were reigning. Because they could move. Um, colors looked so much more intense and beautiful on brown skin and darker skin. And like, like you know, Yves Saint Laurent as a colorist didn't come to fruition until the black girls mm-hmm. it's true so after you came back to new york what was the plan well, after, the, after milan uh, well i had you know i had some photos because i did take a couple of pictures with you know test shots in paris which was you know fabulous and so um and then uh you know with my resume of working for balenciaga i um that, you know, after settling in, I went into New York to a smaller boutique agency, which was Grace Del Marco. Okay. She was black. It was black only. I was daring. <laughs> you know, the blacks out of me, but I, I was daring. <laughs> and I went up there and I gave her my portfolio and they were like, oh, ooh, ooh. and you know, they saw the Clairol, they didn't know. And then and when they saw the Clairol, oh my God, you were on the Clairol box and da, 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 and you had to, and then, you know, so that went on for a second and they hired me right away. The following week, I landed a contract with Ultra Sheen Cosmetics. Johnson, Johnson and Johnson people came in and they called their girls into the uh, agency and we went into the room one by one, hand them our, you know, get, get the greetings, hand them their comp cards, and I got the job. And that was with Grace Del Marco. And then uh, they sent me out on a test. And I tested with this photographer 
and uh, he loved the way I moved and, and loved this one particular shot. Um, and so he took that shot up to Avon, the Avon skincare people, and they loved the shot. They wanted to use the shot. And so the design, um, the photographer signed off on it. And then they called me in and said they would like to use the shot for it, you know, in their advertisement for six months or so. And so I signed a small contract with them that, you know, let them use my image, yes. you know, for the six months time in magazine, all the black magazines. And once that happened, when both of those ads came out, then I got recognized again and Grace Delmarco got a phone call and they were pissed that I had moved and the audacity. And I was like, what do you mean? The audacity mean? to have great bone structure, be able to, to do your job. Yes, I dummied You up. did your job. I, and, you, I, and, and you got them not one, but two clients. The but first time going and I landed I landed them contracts. So what what was what was the problem again? And so um still it was the times, it was the eighties by then, and uh -huh. people just, you know, they just was not accepting. And so in my brain, I'm thinking that I fit in whether you know or not, because fashion and beauty is all fantasy. And who can yes. sell fantasy better than girls like us? Yes. So that was my brain thought. And I was like, okay, well, it's the 80s now, so what's the problem? But they weren't going for it. So uh -huh. then here I was again, out of a job, living back home with mommy taking care of my dog and that's how it all started and ended okay how do you feel now with the sort of new way of dealing with girls like us in the business um with the uh, teddies and uh, all of these girls that mm -hmm. are out and doing it how, yeah. how do you feel now about what is happening with fashion well they have praised me all of those people you spoke of have praised me i've met them and they've all have praised me and i've met the people from pose and um they all put me on this pedestal that i opened a door for them that um you know, if it wasn't for you, maybe I wouldn't be here. And you same know, with, same with me. Same yeah. with me. And yeah. when I was working, I wish I knew you and could ask your advice and ask you how to traverse this world. Right. Because it was it was it was difficult. Yes, and I difficult. don't talk about it and I, and I don't want to dwell on it because, you know, in my mind, I thought I put myself there. Yes. So I had to take, I, you, you have, you, you have to take the blows. Yes, of course. It's, it's like this in history. Um, trailblazers are the ones that pay the price. Yes. For others, to, for others to walk through that door that we've left cracked open and for them to benefit from it. And it's always been like that from history. Yeah. So that's how I've always seen it. And meeting the girls today, the only thing different today is that I had this secret that gave other people the power to out me. They're proud and screaming, I'm transgender. So Nobody can take that from them like they did me, yes. which in the beginning I was confused about because I'm old school. And um, but then I realized that no one has the power to discredit you yes. like they did me. 
So I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I'm very, very happy to see the girls working because I have told girls when I was in the ball community that there is life after the ball. What are you going to do when they don't see you no more? You have to start doing something. You have to start figuring this out now while you're young. But nobody wanted to take that step. But I did after <clears throat> after the ball was, career was over for me. I started working um, in Soho, working for a designer in a shoe shop. And I went from literally in three months' time, I went from sales to assistant manager. And in a year's time, I became manager. And we had two stores. And that was on in, in Soho and in Madison Avenue. And some days I would have to transfer up to Madison Avenue and run that store for a day or so. So you do feel hopeful for the future for the girls? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. But I always, I always, I always say we have a shelf life. Like, yes. like it, it, that um, fashion taught me that. You have a shelf life. Like the white girls were raining. Then the black girls raining. Then the Japanese girls after us were raining. And after the Japanese girls, the redheads were raining. And so everyone, everybody has a shelf life. Even the girls today, they all have a shelf life. If you have different talents and you can move on to do something else after, you know, certain situations, maybe for some other doors will open, but not for all. Yes. So, but but yeah. because all don't take into consideration and and pay attention and like like you were saying with the with the ball community of taking these experiences and seeing how they can inform you for your life after. Yeah, but there's a fear factor, Connie. It's a fear factor to go into straight society and try to uh, earn a living. Yeah. Yeah. So that holds a lot lot of girls back, no matter how beautiful they are, that holds a lot of girls back. Because it's it's frightening. It's frightening the, the sort of concept of being ostracized and fired and not being able to support yourself because you know that the world has this kind of view and it is normalized in society to destroy yeah this is this this is true you're right you're totally right so um are you because I've been asked about this question, are you contemplating writing your life story? And if you do, and as it should be, Oprah will come calling <laughs> with a with a movie deal, either for Hollywood or Netflix. So who do you want to play you? Um, um, yeah, I would love for Angelica Ross to play me. She speaks well, she has class, she's a dark-skinned beauty, and I wouldn't want anybody light-skinned playing me, and she knows how to carry herself, so I would love for her to uh, portray me if that would ever happen. Yes, I I applaud and Mm -hmm. agree wholly. So are you contemplating writing your life story? Well, there are some things in the workings that I cannot um, divulge. Okay, okay. Gorgeous. I'm excited. (laughs) What I can tell you is that the Smithsonian Black American History Museum in Washington, D.C. has contacted me and (gasps) I'm going to be putting my um, work in the museum. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Because uh, as I said before, when I was working 
I wish I knew you and could come to you and say how how do you do this? You have done and been where I wish to be. Even with the slings and arrows, to know your story is to be reflected within it and to give hope and to give an avenue to dream, which is so important because you are one of the girls who allowed me to dream. Um, along with Iman and Katushka and Munya mm-hmm. and Imalia, you mm-hmm. and, and Beverly Johnson, you informed my brain that being Black was not lowly and unattractive. And you being trans like would have given me such a a footing to stand on. And and like you said, it's like, you know, the the, the girls now look up to you because they know that their dreams aren't impossibilities. Definitely. Most definitely. But because I was so overjoyed when Claire all came back and wanted to, you know, correct their mistake and say that what we did was horrifying. And how was that experience? Um, that was that was overwhelming for me because first of all, you know, you get you you get a, a text and a phone call and having the person on the other line saying that they uh, would you be available for a meeting with some clients and they won't tell you who the clients are and it's this whole mystery thing and I said and you know and I go sure and then they set up the date you're coming to New York you have this lunch meeting everybody's introducing themselves by name and then um a couple of people will say, well, do you know why you're here? And I said, well, I, I only know that I'm supposed to be meeting some clients that want to speak to me about something, and I'm uh-huh. guessing. And so they said, yes. So Clairol had new owners. So these were the new owners. And they said that they wanted me to come back and represent the company. And they signed me to a three-year contract. And that day... I just was filled with so many emotions. I wanted to laugh. I wanted to scream. I wanted to cry. I wanted to faint. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that was just truly, truly a blessing. But that all stemmed from the interviews that I had did with New York Mag, um, uh, the London Times, and Mary Claire of South Africa. And those interviews went viral, and that prompted them to... Um, call me and have me come back and represent the company and and with that other things started happening I did a commercial for Lexus and celebrating out the 100th anniversary of out magazine and they gave me a cover and I have a few other covers that are out and I have Oh, it's just been a whirlwind. I mean, it, it, I'm, st- I'm 68 now, and I'm still working. Yes, as it should be. Yeah, but you're saying as it should be, but I'm, <laughs> I'm like overwhelmed with the response that I have gotten and, um, you know, being in front of the camera, even though I'm trying to, it's hard, girl. It is hard. Trying to keep it together. <laughs> Oh gosh, I know. Trying, trying to keep it all suspended in midair. And keeping it tight. Oh my God. I know. I know. I know. Yeah, so it's just, it, it truly is, truly has been um, uh, 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 amazing and, and a blessing for me. And I just did 
um, an anniversary photo shoot for a London magazine for GQ magazine. They were selling their uh, celebrating their 50th anniversary, and they asked me to be a part of it as um, part of the article of Black Lives Matter. And oh, so, beautiful! Yeah, so I did that, and um, yeah, the photo came out beautiful, and uh, yeah, so that came out in November. So it it. It's just exciting, and I'm just going on. I'm just riding this ride as long as a, as the wheels are moving. Um, do you have any advice for the community? That's that. That's going to be my last my last question. Do you have any um, advice? Yes, my advice is to. Um, do exactly what I did. When the door opens, walk through it because you need to walk through it with the mentality that you are walking through that door with nothing, but you may walk out with a contract. Thank you. Bravo, bravo, bravo. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Connie. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, so glad that I agreed to do this. Never Apart is committed to our mission of initiating social change and spiritual awareness through cultural programming. We launch seasonal exhibitions, which are accessible online as virtual tours, as well as artist talks, a monthly online magazine, and so much more. Check out our website, neverapart.com, and find us on social channels at neverapartmtl.com.